46. It's in these chapters in the 40s that the Lord mocks idols and calls his people to know him as the only true God who does not share his glory with any other. I'd like to read one of those chapters, Isaiah 46. And then we'll turn back in the Forms and Prayers book to read the Catechism's explanation of the first commandment. Isaiah 46, the first verse speaks of Baal and Nebo. These are Babylonian gods. And so Isaiah, written before the captivity, foresees God's people having gone into captivity, carried away because of their idolatry, and now being restored by the Lord and brought home when the Persians capture or take over Babylon. Isaiah 46, verse 1, God's word. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place, it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this. And show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure." Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will give place salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. God's word. If you take out the Forms and Prayers book again or return to the same place or just beyond it there, page 242, we'll read two more questions and answers there. Page 242, looking at the first commandment, you shall not have any other gods before me. Question 94 asks, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? And we confess this, that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, 
I avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayers to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and I love and fear and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. And then question 95 says, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Let's come before God in prayer and ask for his blessing on his word today. O Lord, our God, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We pray it would not return to you void, but accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. And we pray on this day, Lord, your purpose would be for us life, encouragement, conviction, strengthening. We pray you'd visit every heart in this place today. As you, the living God, proclaim your glory through Christ, your beloved Son, that your word be preached truthfully. Give us your spirit to believe it. In Jesus' name, we pray, God, glorify yourself in these moments. Amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, we begin then a study of the law of God, specifically the Ten Commandments, called the Ten Words. They were delivered at Mount Sinai as God brought his people to the mountain out of Egypt. And as we, as we study these Ten Commandments, it's essential this story is the most important thing. It's essential that we never forget the introduction to the law of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The lawgiver, before he speaks his law, he identifies himself to us. And it's noteworthy how he does that. He proclaims that he is God, right? That's true, and as God, as the only God, as the eternal God, as the creator, he has a right to the worship of every creature, the obedience of every creature in the world. And yet, as he identifies himself as the lawgiver, he doesn't simply say, I am God Almighty, I am the creator, but he says specifically, I am the Lord, your God. Speaking in covenant terms, I will be your God and you will be my people. I am your God who brought you out of bondage, who saved you. And so, as John Calvin rightly notes, when God gives this law, he doesn't simply compel obedience, obey me because I am God, but he attracts us by sweetness. He says, I am your God. I have loved you. I have saved you. I have given myself to you. That's his introduction to the Ten Commandments. And it's only when we keep that introduction in mind at each point that we avoid a couple terrible pitfalls. One of them would be despair or in hearing the commandments we throw up our arms and say, well, I can't do that. Forget it. It's worthless. And the other side would be to fall into the ditch of self-righteousness and say, I can do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to attain righteousness before God. But if we know that the gospel is the thing that introduces the law, 
I'm your liberator. I have saved you through Jesus Christ. I've brought you out of Satan's bondage, out of the grip of sin, and brought you to be my people. I have loved you. I've set you free of your guilt and of the power of sin. And I'm bringing you to myself. Then it changes our whole perspective on the law, doesn't it? Because then the law is not for us some chronic obstacle and some dreary burden that, you know, it's always, it's always hindering our happiness. It's always in the way I hate the law. But instead, if, if it's the God who has loved us and saved us, who's speaking to us, then we know that this law is life. Walking in these commandments is the path of blessing with our God. And then we know that what air is for our lungs and what water is for the fish and what tracks are for the train, so is the law of God to our lives. It is the only atmosphere in which we can live and enjoy God's blessing. And now the law is not a burden, but it's a reflection of the glorious character of our God. And it's the atmosphere in which we enjoy the love and fellowship with God, not because we keep it perfectly, Because in walking hand in hand with our God, repenting of sin and striving to keep covenant with him, it's in this atmosphere that we enjoy our Lord and all of his riches through Christ Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, as we come to the first commandment, we're reminded there's only two kinds of gods in the world. There are what we might call wheelbarrow gods, the kinds described in Isaiah 46, the opening verses, Baal and Nebo who thought they were something, Babylon thought they were something, they gave Babylon great victories over nations, and now the Persians have conquered, and Baal and Nebo are on the back of a wagon, strapped to a beast. They can't deliver themselves, and they themselves have gone into captivity. These gods are being carried off to be stripped of their gold and made naked. Wheelbarrow gods are the kinds you have to cart around. You have to carry them. They make you weary. And then there is, God says, there's me, the living God. Your God, O Israel. You've been upheld by me from birth. You've been carried from your womb, from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and I will deliver you. So you've got the gods in this world that you have to carry because they're helpless. And then you've got the God, your God, Israel, who carries you. If this morning you say to yourself, I'm tired and I'm weary and I'm frustrated, I'm angry, then you should ask, is it because I got a pack of gods on my back? All these things I thought would save me and I just have to carry them around. They're helpless. They're dead weight. Or if this morning you say, I'm very happy, I'm very satisfied, you could ask, is it a happiness in the Lord that even if you lose all your money or all your health, you're still going to be happy because it's a real God who's sustaining you and carrying you? This morning as we come to the first commandment and we hear this gracious God saying, I'm the God who saved you, worship me alone. God is saying, give up the wheelbarrow gods and rest in the true God. And even as believers, we can grow in that. We can grow to be more devoted to God, more purely trusting in God. We can grow to cast off the idols. Let's look this morning 
at the misery of idolatry and then at the author of our freedom. The misery of idolatry and then the author of our freedom. Boys and girls, when God in the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, boys and girls, does that mean there's other gods? You shall have no other gods before me. Are there other gods? No, there's no other God. God says he's the only one. But he says you shall have no other gods because we're good at making gods. We're good at inventing gods. We're good at setting up factories that turn out idols. Now, some idols are easily seen, but some are hidden deep in our hearts. But everybody has idols. Every heart, every culture, every people that's ever lived on the earth has idols because we are incurably religious. We have a desperate need to worship, to praise. Everybody does. Just listen to your unbelieving neighbor, the things he, he adores and praises and lifts up. He, he loves to worship. And we're all needy. We, we need help. We, we depend upon something outside of ourselves. Egypt, where Israel was, was taken from, had its idols, and Israel apparently fell into worshiping some of those. And then as God is going to bring his people into the land of Canaan, he tells them, tear down their high places, grind up their idols. They had idols. And then when God's people fall into idolatry themselves and get carried away to Babylon, Babylon has its idols. And then when you come to the New Testament, every city Paul visits has idols. And as he comes to Athens, he, he, he says, the word says in Acts 17 that, that Paul's heart, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Paul, as he stands at the Areopagus, he says, I see you're a very religious people. You've got a God, statue to everything. Athens was swamped with idols. One Greek historian referred to Athens as one great altar, one great sacrifice. Someone said it was easier to find a God in Athens than it was to find a man. They had gods for everything. Statues to mercy and to effort and to shame. They had gods of war and gods of money and gods of sex and gods for the nation and gods for the craftsmen. And Paul came and he said, turn from these idols to the true living God whom I declare to you through Christ. And you know, as we read the first commandment, it's easy to think, well, we know we're not a primitive people. I don't know anybody who has a statue, a hunk of wood. But idols can be present even when they don't look like idols. Idols in our hearts. What is idolatry? Catechism's answer is very enlightening, isn't it? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. An idol is anything to which we give the things that belong to God. We give our praise, we give our worship, we give our honor, we give our prayers, help me. We give our satisfaction. Anything that gets honored in God's place is an idol. Whenever we transfer to something in creation what belongs to God, when we say meaning, the meaning of life, the purpose of my life is that, if it's not God, it's an idol. When we say that the thing that, that makes me so happy, the thing I can't live without, if it's anything but God, that's an idol. When we get shaken up because we got bad news about our health or about our finances or something, and we run to anything, first of all, instead of God, that's an idol. Somebody has defined idolatry as turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. 
Sometimes idols are sinful things, but they can also be good things that we turn into ultimate things. And when that happens then, if that ultimate thing now gets taken from us, we fall into despair. The book that defines idolatry that way opens up with a litany of men who took their lives in 2008 and following after the financial crisis. Men who owned millions and billions or were in charge of huge investments and who lost so much and now lost the meaning to life. Shot themselves or hung themselves. We can turn our spouse into an idol. Our parents, our children, our house, our job, our car, our boat, our reputation, our money, our food, our popularity, our fishing, our baseball, our clothes, our church. Matthew Henry writes on the first commandment, the Puritan Matthew Henry writes, Pride makes a god of self. Covetousness makes a god of money. Sensuality makes a god of the belly. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or dependent upon, more than God, whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. What gives your life meaning? What gives your life pleasure? What gives your life security? Is there anything in your life that if you lost it, life would not be worth living for you? The ancient world had gods of beauty and war and fertility and wealth. And they had their shrines and they had their temples, but we still do today. There are many places that, for some people, are shrines and temples. If you visit the gym, you will find some worshipers there. Or if you visit the grocery store, you'll find some worshipers there. If you visit the doctor's office, you'll find some people bowing down there. If you go to the resort, you'll find some there. If you go to the investment brokerage, you'll find some there. You find people worshiping at temples all over the place. Young people are not immune, of course, to idolatry. There's many young people who could hardly live if they're not popular on their social media account. Social acceptance is the thing. For some young ladies, it's beauty. Inordinate amount of times and money are spent on, on beauty. Some even fall into depression or eating disorders because they pursue with obsession the outward appearance. And you see that the gods, the false gods, are cruel. Was Pharaoh a pleasant guy to serve? No, he was a taskmaster. But you see, all that was typological of of what Satan is, right? Of, of what it is to serve anyone but God. All the false gods are cruel. They're angry. They're bloodthirsty. They're slave drivers. And so idolatry is misery. It hurts you, it hurts others, and it dishonors God. Idolatry always hurts you because idols are liars. In Isaiah 46, God speaks in verse 6 and 7 about those who who lavish out gold and images made. And then they, they set up that image in a place. And then verse 7, they cry out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Now, idols never tell you that up front. They always tell you, you know, it's going to be good. I'm going to help you. I can do everything for you. But they always fail their worshipers in the day when you really need them. 
Back in Isaiah chapter 44, you have those famous mockeries where God laughs at the man who takes a tree out of the forest and half of it he he burns in the fire and he cooks his bread and he warms himself and the other half he, he makes into an image and says, you are my God, deliver me. And then Isaiah 44, that's verses 16 and 17, but then in 19 and 20 we read, And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul. Nor say, nor can he say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The unbeliever can't see it. He can't say, this is a lie. This thing that I've given my life to, this thing that I thought would bring me the greatest happiness, this is a lie. Unbelief can't see it. Instead, these false gods are enslaving. They always demand more. They never let go. Take something like child sacrifice. It's been present throughout the history of the fallen humanity, hasn't it? In Old Testament days, people literally laid children on an altar and burned them up to their gods. But many children have been laid upon the altar of abortion. Many have been laid upon the altar of their dad's quest to be rich. Many children have been given up, have been sacrificed for idols. But idols will always destroy you. There's no life in them. They're poison. I saw years ago a TV show about a young man who moved to Alaska to live off the land in the Alaskan wilderness all alone. And he, well, they discovered where he lived. They found this old bus way out in the middle of nowhere that he had made his home near a river. And they found his journal, which told the story of how when winter came and all his food ran out, he tried to live off the land. And he found the only way he could, a certain plant began to eat it, and it seemed to work out well. It was edible, he thought, sustained him, and then he began to get sick. And after eating this plant for some time, it dawned on him that the plant was killing him. And he wrote in his journal that he knew now it was the plant. He stopped eating the plant, but it was too late. And slowly he died all alone in the cold of an Alaskan winter, poisoned by the very thing he thought was his life and savior. And that's idolatry. The things that our unbelieving neighbors think will bring them life are poison. They are toxic. But idolatry doesn't just destroy us. It destroys those around us, doesn't it? It's a destructive force. It's a destructive force in other people's lives. Psalm 135 says, if you worship idols, you become like them. You become like the thing you worship. If you worship Satan, who is a murderer, guess what you're going to become? I read about a lady named Anna who longed to have children, finally got married, and against the doctor's expectation, she bore children, two of them. But she was so consumed now with giving these children the perfect life. She was so obsessive 
that she found it impossible to enjoy the children and so overprotective that her children ended up with all kinds of emotional problems and she ruined them. What does it do when parents make idols out of their children? Well, then they over-discipline them because they can't bear the thought that the children don't turn out right. Or they under-discipline them because they can't bear the thought my child might not love me or like me if I discipline them. What does it do when you make your spouse your idol? Now, if your spouse fails you or speaks an unkind word to you, it's devastating. You can't get over it. You see? When we're idolaters, we hurt the people around us. Men who make a god out of their money, their business, their recreation have often neglected their family. That's an obvious one. But what about ego? When ego is your idol, you love yourself, your own name, your own reputation, your own pride. And now you can't forgive. But you met people like that, they, they know they should forgive. They, they know they should call up their son or their brother and get reconciled, but I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. It's an idol that has destroyed. What about the false gods that would keep people from church? Keep people from committing to church? Or keep people from serving in the church? What about the false god of freedom? I don't want a commitment. I don't want to put my name down to anything. I, I like to do what I want to do and make my decisions as I go along. I don't want to be bound to have to do this or that or care for those people. This is the misery of idolatry. It owns you. And what does it do to God? Well, it doesn't do anything to God per se because he's God and he can't be undone by us. But listen to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks, what, what are we specifically taught by the words before me in the first commandment? No other gods before me. Answer, these words before me in the first commandment teach us that God who sees all things takes notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. You shall have no other gods before me means you shall have no gods in my presence. And God is saying, I see all things. I see your life. If you worship another God, it's in my presence. John Calvin says it's, it's like a, a shameless woman who brings her her lover home into the house where her husband is as if to provoke him. And he says that because in the Old Testament, God speaks of idolatry as spiritual adultery. The covenant Lord, it says to his people, I'm the Lord your God, I saved you, I give myself to you. And he says, if you go after other gods, you're committing adultery against me. And when you do in my face, which it always is in my face, it provokes me to jealousy. You see, in this covenant bond we have with God, he is rightfully a jealous husband. When you get married, you make an exclusive bond. As Kevin DeYoung points out, you don't say after getting married, hey, honey, I want you to meet my other lover. I think you guys will get along great. I love both of you so much. <laughs> she says, no way. It's her or me. It's me or her. It's exclusive. Our covenant Lord says that to us, his bride. I am the Lord, your God. There is no other for you. 
You may have no other lovers in my presence. What a sorrow idolatry is. It dishonors the God who has loved us. But after we've seen the misery of idolatry, let us consider the author of our freedom. The author of our freedom. Isaiah 46 is gloriously comforting because God is promising to do it again. He had already carried his people out of slavery, brought them into Canaan, gave them his house with them, his temple there, his blessing upon them, and they turned from God to idols. And so God, God punished them by sending them into captivity. And now, despite the fact that they have failed God, what's God say? He says, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to carry you again. I will rescue you. Those Babylonian gods, yeah, they're going to get carried away. They're not going to stop me. I'm going to call a bird of prey, verse 11. I think it refers to Cyrus, the Persian ruler who will conquer Babylon. I'm going to execute my will and bring you guys home. I'm going to save you. You don't have to fear the gods of Babylon. I'm going to rescue you. Now, both rescues in the Old Testament, the Exodus and then the Deliverance from captivity are pictures or types of the coming deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, who will rescue us from a grotesque slavery. Brothers and sisters, we need to be rescued. There is no salvation without it because by nature we are slaves to idolatry. One writer compares it to American slavery. He writes, a slave in slavery is not free in the least. The slave lives in a locale where everything around him represents part of slave land. If a slave was owned by a plantation master, then the entire area for miles around that land was the land of slavery. He writes, when a person lives outside of Christ, the whole surrounding territory is the land of slavery. If a person lives under the control of Satan, he has the chains of Satan on his wrists The iron cuffs of Satan on his ankles, the collar of Satan on his neck, the thinking of Satan in his brain, the tattoo of Satan on his body, the disease of Satan inside him, the whip of Satan over him, and the bloodhounds of Satan biting at his heels. Yet the slave of the devil does not even desire to be free. The person outside of Christ is a pathetically sad case. But once the Lord takes pity on you, redeeming you from Satan, sin and shame. You belong to him because he's purchased you from the slave auction block by Christ's blood. You belong to Jesus. How does Christ, the author of our liberty, do that? Well, he deals, first of all, with the guilt of sin, doesn't he? You know, if I asked you, how did God bring his people out of Egypt? You'd say, well, he... He broke down Pharaoh with the plagues. He opened the Red Sea. But it's actually not the first thing he does, is it? Or the main thing or the last thing. You know, there would not be a people to bring out of Egypt if there had not been a Passover lamb. Because when the angel of death went out, the only reason that the firstborn of Israel didn't die was because Passover lamb blood was smeared on their doorposts. 
The only reason Christ can set us free from Satan is because he takes away our guilt. He who is our Passover lamb. Brothers and sisters, we, we by nature are idolaters. We, we have brought gods into God's presence. We have provoked our covenant partner. Why should we not die this morning? Well, because of the blood of the Lord Jesus that covers. As this morning you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, you, you are tasting freedom, right? That's the taste of freedom. Jesus paid my penalty. If there is no forgiveness, there would be no way back home. But God did not require the Israelites to pay their own way to get out of Egypt. He didn't require them to pay their own way to get out of Babylon. And he didn't require us to pay our own way to get reconciled with God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has paid our way. Paid it entirely. So Christ has paid for our guilt, but he's also broken the power of Satan over us. God displayed his power through those plagues. He humbled all the fake deities of Egypt, and each of those plagues were an attack upon the gods of Egypt. And God was proclaiming that he's mightier than Pharaoh, mightier than Egypt's gods. He split the Red Sea. But Christ has done something greater. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's what Colossians 2.15 says after it describes Christ's death on the cross for our sins. Christ has triumphed over all the powers, the dark powers of this world. So Christ has borne our guilt and Christ has set us free from Satan's power and Christ is exposing to us the idols and showing to us what worthless idols they are. This is, this is deliverance as well, to hear God's word proclaimed to us and to have the false gods exposed, to have the spirit convict us and show us it's useless that way. Maybe I told you years ago, I was standing at McDonald's with a friend and, and we ordered something and then the cash register came on the display Though we didn't notice it, it was $6.66. And the lady, the young girl working there, as soon as we ordered, she says, you want something else? We said, well, no, no thanks, we're good. She said, you want to order something else? <laughs> we, we looked at her, we said, why? And she points that display, 666. And we laughed. She was superstitious. But we were not afraid of a number. Satan has power, but his power is not found in a McDonald's register display screen. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I'm not wanting to endanger my own salvation, that I avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or other creatures. Isn't it fun to be able to laugh at the silliness of people who get up in the morning and read their horoscope as if this is the agenda and the plan of what's going to happen this day for them? The Lord says to Israel, that's nonsense. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted people. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my pleasure. Are you afraid of Baal and Nebo? Are you afraid of the king of Babylon? Listen to me. I am God, and my plans will stand. Don't 
try to invoke deceased saints. Don't go to the grave of your loved one and try to communicate with the dead as if that is in any way your life or blessing. I am your God. Don't play with horoscopes. Don't go to palm readers or psychics. You listen to my word. I am your God. The Lord pulls the idols out of our hands sometimes, too. The things we trust in, he lets them collapse. That we might discern that there is no life in those things. But God has revealed himself most greatly through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The only way to avoid idolatry is to worship Jesus. And there's no way to worship the true God but through Christ who is the eternal Son of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says, because he is, as Hebrews 1 says, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his image. There's no way to worship God now except in and through Christ. Christ is God. He is God revealed to us. And if you worship anyone but the Lord Jesus, if you worship any God but the true God through Jesus, then you engage in idolatry. It's Christ who has set us free from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, from the superstition of idolatry. To know that we are blessed by communion with God through Christ. And you know what? This true God will never, ever fail his worshipers. Is your back weary this morning? Are your arms tired because of a wheelbarrow full of useless idols? Then just go ahead and dump them all. And come back to God and say, you're, you're my everything. I would not trust any other. I would not honor any other. I will not give my prayers and pleas to any other. You are my God. You've given yourself to me through Jesus Christ. And I will trust you only. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we have hearts of idolatry. We are prone, Lord, to trust in ourselves and to trust in our loved ones and to trust in our money and in our wisdom and in our doctor. Father, teach us how to trust in you alone, how to use the good things of this world for your sake and not giving to these created things that which belongs to our Creator and Redeemer. O Father, forgive us, we pray, and let us taste again of the freedom we have in Christ at your table. Thank you, O Lord, for deliverance, so that we are no longer deceived, but we have seen the Father through our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.